Gracious Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you've given us tonight to meet together in the middle of this week and spend some time with our minds focused on you and on what you revealed to us, specifically in the book of Esther. We pray that you would bless our study tonight. We pray for your blessing to be with the other classes that are meeting also at this time. And we pray that all that we say and do would bring you honor and glory and will be pleasing to you. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, Esther chapters 5 and 6. Remember last week when we looked at chapter 4, we said that chapter 4 was uh, one of those, uh, or recorded one of the pivotal moments uh, in the, the narrative where Esther makes her decision. She is going to go in before the king and plead for the lives of her people because Haman has got uh, a law put in place that called for the extermination of all of the Jewish people. Esther's Jewish herself, uh, as is Mordecai. Mordecai convinced her that, um, that she had everything to lose if she didn't try something because the decree applied to her as much as it did any other Jewish person. Just because she was in the palace, uh, she shouldn't think that she would escape. And so he convinced her that perhaps, to use his word, Esther 4.14, perhaps she had come uh, into that place in the kingdom just for such a time as this. And so she said at the end of the chapter, verse 16, I will go to the king, and if I die, I die. And so that's where we pick things up uh, in chapter 5. They had, Esther had requested for a period of fasting uh, to uh, prepare for her uh, encounter with the king. And so after that designated period was over, uh, she approached the king's throne room. She stood in the inner court, verse 1 of chapter 5 says, uh, while the king was uh, on his royal throne. And verse 2 says, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. That was the thing she was worried about. Because the law stated, and that was kind of how she, you know, her interchange with Mordecai last week. uh, She reminded him that that the king's presence was protected. And you just didn't go barging into his throne room. Uh, There were consequences for that. And they were... Deadly. (laughs) You could lose your life if you went in uninvited and unannounced. And uh, but she had no other choice. And so, um, and so she goes in. Now the only exception to that would be if the king held out his uh, scepter, which was his indication. If he did that, his indication of welcome. And so she goes in and she wins favor. In his sight, middle of verse 2, he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And so that was his indication to her that she was welcome. She would not be punished uh, for coming in uninvited. Verses 3 through 5, 
when the king asked her what she wanted, why she would come in to see him, she didn't come to tell him. Uh, of course, the reason she went in there was to try to do something about this plot. But she doesn't tell him that immediately, which is important as the way the, uh, the narrative plays out. What she does is uh, request, verse 4, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Well, this excited him. And uh, when Haman found out, he was excited too. And so they go to this feast, this banquet that she's prepared. And while they're there, after they had, uh, had eaten and, uh, you know, things were going swimmingly, evidently. And so the king says, what is your wish? This is verse 6. It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Uh, probably uh, some hyperbole on the king's part there. He's basically saying, just tell me what you want, anything. I'm more than happy to do whatever it is that you want. And so, again, she doesn't tell him what her real uh, purpose is. Instead, she asks, verse 8, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king. So basically she says, would, would you come back tomorrow to another banquet, another feast? They were happy to do that. So Mordecai then or excuse me, Haman leaves the palace and he's headed home. Verse 9 describes him as being joyful and glad of heart. But a funny thing happened on the way to his house. He crosses paths with Mordecai. Now, of course, they were the ones that, you know, Haman, it was Mordecai's actions toward Haman or lack of actions toward Haman they got this whole problem started in the first place. It was because Mordecai would refuse consistently to bow down to Haman that Haman got this plot uh, started that's supposed to result in the extermination of the Jews. Well, here they cross paths again, and Mordecai does it again, the same as he always had. He refused to bow down to Haman. Well, that just infuriates Haman. Verse, um, end of verse 9 says concerning Haman, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. So he was overcome by anger, but he didn't do anything personally. He just went on home. And when he got there, he told his family uh, about uh, the banquet that he had had with the queen that day and how he had been invited to another one the next day. Uh, you'll see that in verse 11. Uh, Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions which the king had honored him, uh, and all of that. Verse 12, Easter, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow I'm also invited together. So while Mordecai, while uh, Haman is talking to his family, he's talking about, here are all the things in my life that are good and positive. I've got good family. I've got wealth. I've got status. Uh, I was the only one besides the king that got to dine with the queen today and she's invited me back tomorrow. 
All of those things. But then look at 13. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. We'll say something about that in practical applications in a moment. But notice that he just simply says none of that matters. Because none of this matters so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. As long as he's here, as long as he's around, none of this other stuff matters. Then look at verse 14. Haman's wife offered a very simple solution. Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. So the wife says, look, this is not rocket science. Okay, This is not a difficult problem. I mean, this is the same man that got a law enacted that's going to exterminate an entire race of people if it's carried out. Here's one man. Just go to the king ask for his life. He'll give it to you. Just go kill, you know, hang the guy and then go have a ball at the feast. Well, Haman likes the idea and um, uh, prepares, has, has the, uh, the gallows prepared the next day or for, for use the next day. All right. Now, chapter six. On that night, verse one says, the king could not sleep. So Xerxes, the king, has got insomnia. And in order to deal with that, he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. This is the book, the record, that we were introduced to first at the end of chapter 2. Because all of that's coming back to bear on the events. And so throughout the night, evidently, we don't know what time in the night that the king decided to have a servant read to him. Uh, at some point in the night, it begins to read. And as morning is dawning, verse 2 says, it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes. Remember that from chapter 2. Mordecai is outside the, the, the palace gates and he overhears these two uh, court officials, palace officials, plotting the king's life. And he reported that to Esther they investigated it, found it to be true, and those two individuals were taken and executed. So Mordecai basically saved the king's life. In chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, it tells us that those that involved Mordecai were recorded in the chronicles of the king's reign. So that, while the king is unable to sleep, the servant begins to read from this record, and lo and behold... He just happens to read through that particular event. And the king said, we're in chapter 6, verse 3, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? 
In other words, this, this man saved my life. What did we do for him? And uh, they said, well, nothing had him. End of verse 3. Well, about that time, the king looks out into the, the outer court and he said, who's that? Who's that in the outer court that's walking in? Well, it was Haman. And Haman is there for a particular purpose. Haman is there to ask for the life of Mordecai. Right? That's what the wife had suggested the night before. They've, they've got everything ready. All things are ready. Come to the hanging. Okay? That's what, that's what Haman is thinking. And so he's walking in to ask for Mordecai's life. And so the king says, that's Haman, send him in. We're down to verse 6. Haman came in. The king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Well, this is a hypothetical question. Okay? king didn't reveal who he had in mind. He just said, if I want to honor somebody, what, what do you think I should do? Guess what Haman thinks. Verse 7. Well, into verse 6. And Haman said to himself. All right, so Haman's thinking. Well, who would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> right? Who, there, there's, who else could it possibly be? I mean, it's a whole kingdom worth of people. There's not a single person in all of the Persian Empire that the king would want to honor more than yours truly. What he's thinking. And so he does it upright. He said, ah, well, you want to honor somebody? Let me think here for just a moment. Uh, verse 7, Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. You know, people like, um, people like game-worn jerseys, don't they? Did they ever find Tom Brady's jersey yet? Okay, they're looking for it, evidently, that he wore in the Super Bowl. Why? That's valuable. Okay, Now, you could go buy a number 12 jersey at Academy for a price. That's not the same as something that was game-worn. All right. So Haman says, bring out royal robes that the king has actually worn. Dress him in those. Uh, the horse that the king has ridden. And on whose head a royal crown is set. Robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Get, get your top official. And after you've dressed this man that you want to honor in all of the king's clothing and the crown, and he's riding the king's horse and all that, you get one of your top guys and you lead him through the city. Look at verse, um, middle of verse 9. Let them lead him to the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. All right, so you dress him like the king, put him on the king's horse, walk him through town, and you have your top official just sing his praises. Verse 10. King said to Haman, Great idea. That's Eddie's paraphrase the parish version. He said, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew. 
if this were a movie, this would be where the dramatic music would just would come in. Bum, 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 right? So Haman has just had the wind knocked out of him. Never laid a hand on him. And notice how, uh, uh, do so, end of verse 10, do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you've mentioned. <laughs> don't, don't cut any corners here. You do everything that you suggested. Well, the king has no idea uh, that Haman was coming in there to ask for Mordecai's life. But that's what was going to happen. But Haman, verse 11, did what the king said. Took the horse, dressed Mordecai, led him through the square, singing his praises. And then Mordecai, verse 12, returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. <laughs> you know, there were people in, in the area there that knew of the ongoing spat between Haman and Mordecai. Because you remember back in chapter 3, when all this was initially spoken of in, in the book, that there were other officials who came to Mordecai and said, why don't you bow down to Haman? So people were talking about this. They knew the relationship, and Mordecai defended himself. I'm a Jew. I'm not going to bow down to him. So some of these same people, no doubt, that knew of all of this, would have also been among those who were witnessing Haman singing Mordecai's praises right down Main Street, Susa. And so he just ducks his head and covers it and runs home. All right. So Haman then tells his wife, verse 13, and all of his friends, everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife say something to him. Very interesting. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Isn't that an interesting statement? We don't know what prompted it. We don't know why those individuals in, in the capital city of the Persian Empire, that perception of the Jewish people, maybe they, maybe they viewed what happened to Haman that day as some kind of a sign, some kind of an omen, that, um, that something worse was going to happen. Who knows? But it's an interesting statement that they say, you've already begun to fall before this man. And it looks to us like uh, you're in a fall that you're not going to recover from. All right? And while they were yet talking, verse 14, chapter 6, the king's eunuchs arrived to bring Haman that Esther had prepared. All right. So don't forget about that, right? She, she had asked the king and Haman to come to a feast that next day. The king can't sleep. You have the reading. Then the, the next day, Haman shows up. He has to do this thing for Mordecai. But he still had to go to this other feast, this other banquet that the queen had prepared. And that'll be chapter 7, which we, I doubt we'll get to uh, tonight. Because I want to do some application points from 5 and 6. All right? Let's think about these by way of um, lessons, perhaps, that we can draw from these two chapters.
<clears throat> Number one, how about this? Jealousy and pride can make a person extremely bitter. Jealousy and pride can make a person extremely bitter. Hold that thought just a second, James. Chapter 5, verse 9. Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart, right? Because the queen had invited him back to this banquet. But by the end of that verse, he's filled with wrath because Mordecai wouldn't down to him. Haman had more than enough to be happy. I mean, if you look at it just from a worldly perspective, right? Forget spiritual things, but just look at it from a worldly perspective. He had status in the kingdom. He had wealth. He had children. He had invitations to, to banquets with the queen. But his ego and his jealousy kept him from enjoying that. that. That's the passage where he says, none of this matters to me. None of it. As long as Mordecai is there, taking away my joy. So, And it was all jealousy and pride. And it turned him into a very bitter person. Okay, James, did you had a comment? Sure. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Lesson number two. <clears throat> Righteousness can really irritate some people. Back to chapter 5, verse 13. Again, he says, All of this is worth nothing to me. As long as Mordecai is... There, Haman could not remove from his mind the thought of Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him. He, he just he couldn't. He, he couldn't get it out of his head. And Mordecai was doing nothing but acting in a proper way. Um, and so his Mordecai's righteousness rebuked Haman's character, and he didn't like it. Hold your place there in uh, Esther, and uh, I want to call your attention to some passages that, uh, that illustrate or support that principle. In the New Testament, 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. John writes, we should not be like who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So John gives us some inspired commentary on Genesis chapter 4. Calling attention back to the... the uh, the murder of Abel. And he says, look, Cain, Cain murdered his brother for this reason. Because Abel's actions were righteous and Cain's were evil. So Abel's righteous life rebuked Cain's unrighteous life. And it bothered Cain so much that he actually killed his brother over it. Sometimes righteousness irritates people. It irritates evil people. How about uh, Psalm 38, verse 20? 
Psalm 38, 20. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Okay, this is uh, a psalm attributed to David. And he contemplated how he was being treated by enemies. And he said, there are people who give me evil in response to my good. And they accuse me because that's because I'm following after the good thing. Some people are that way. Number next, lesson. Uh, murder just doesn't bother some people. One of the things that, that pops out at me from the end of chapter 5 is, is how easily, how, how seemingly nonchalantly Haman's wife says, just go kill the guy. You know, just just have a gallows built and hang him on it. And then, if you do that early enough in the morning, you can go to the Queen's Banquet in the afternoon and have a ball. There seems to be no... There's no indication that there was any twinge of conscience at all. It was just go, you know, go do it. Get, get that out of your way and then have a good time at the Queen's Banquet. Um, but that's not an attitude confined to, um, you know, to just a long time ago in a faraway place. There are some folks today that have no more pang of conscience overtaking human life than, than she evidently did. How many abortions take place in our country every day? Thousands? And, and how many of them are performed by people who have not, not one? Not only does their conscience not bother them, their conscience would bother them if they weren't pushing for it as much as they are. I submit they're not any different than this lady was. Yes, sir? Can, yeah, anger, anger can cause folks to do a lot of things if they don't control it. Very true. You know, sometimes, back, back to the point about how murder doesn't bother some people, I, I think the abortion thing fits. Um, you know, I think there are... You hear sometimes about, um, you know, some gang activities in, in some cities where... People gun other people down and seem to have no conscience that's that's touched by that. Uh, so this is you know this is not this is not just a problem bygone age in a place far away. People have very similar attitudes. Some people do, even in our nation. Well, we won't go through and look at all the passages that that talk about. The sinfulness of murder, of course, uh, hands that shed innocent blood, Proverbs 6, among the seven things that God hates, um, and a lot of other passages too. 
couple more lessons before we're through. How about this lesson? How quickly the tables can turn. How quickly the tables can turn. From chapter 6. I'm sorry? Mm, Well, I think the tables can turn for a lot of reasons. Yes. Well, that's true. Uh, but the, the, the application that I was thinking of was not from, from Esther's circumstance, but from Haman's. And how quickly things can turn in that sense. Haman is coming before the king to ask for Mordecai's life. And from his perspective, he's got a plan and has, has no concept, no idea that anything could, could thwart that plan. You know, he, how, how could he ever dream that things were going to turn out the way they did in just a matter of moments? He had no idea that not only would he not be able to take Mordecai's life, he was going to be parading Mordecai through the town square singing his praises. Things turned very quickly for him because the future is very uncertain. And um, it is seldom wise to say, I know exactly what's going to happen. There may be circumstances in which, you know, we can say that. You know, if I were to hold up a book and say, all right, I'm going to let this go, and I know exactly what's going to happen, right? If I do that, it's going to drop. But when you're talking about predicting how life circumstances are going to come out and what's going to happen tomorrow... Um, we don't have the ability to see the future. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast yourself of tomorrow, for you know not what a day brings forth. Luke 12, Jesus told a parable about a man who, didn't, who, who thought the future was going to work out one way. The, the, the rich, wealthy uh, farmer who you know, had an abundance of crops and he said, uh, you know, I don't know what to do with all this. I guess I will tear down the barns I have. I'll build bigger ones and I'll store all of these things uh, up for a long future. But he was told, you know, what? very night, your soul is required of you. And so it was somebody who didn't take into account the uncertainty of life. What James tell us about that? James chapter 4. Uh, he says, you who say... Uh, you know, I'm going to go into such and such a city, spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit. He said, what is your life? It's just, just a vapor, it's just a cloud that appears for a little time and vanishes away. Instead, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this, that, or the other. Here was an individual that James references who had already mapped out what he was going to do for the next year. And James says, you don't even going to do today. You don't know what's going to happen in your life, what life is going to bring your way. So, recognize that. That's all he's indicating in James 4. Recognize the fact that you don't know exactly what's going to happen. 
consider the will of God and make place for that. That if God wills, you can and do you can do this, that, or the other. Next lesson: Pride goes before destruction. That that may be the life lesson of Haman from start to finish. Pride goes before destruction. Haman was so consumed with himself that he didn't even entertain the possibility that the king might want to honor somebody else besides him. You know, that's the essence of pride when when the king says, you know, I'd like to honor somebody. What do you think I should do for somebody that I want to honor? And I I said this earlier, you know, think think about, you know, here's the king, the, the, the vast expanse of the Persian Empire. How many people do he know? But Haman says, it can't be anybody else but me. Well, that's pride. And in Proverbs 6, we mentioned earlier the, the things, the seven things that God hates from Proverbs 6. I don't know that these are listed in order of importance. I think they all fall into the same. But first on the list is a proud look. Uh, those are Pride is not something that that curries the favor of God. We should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Romans 12.3 Next, <clears throat> real honor is not necessarily human praise. Real honor is not necessarily human praise. Um, that's what Haman wanted it to be. If the king wants to honor someone, Haman, what should he do for them? Well, his... It was all wrapped up in human praise. Sometimes honor, real honor, is found when a person uh, just humbly serves God. The best among you will be your servant. Matthew 20. All right, one more. we got time for one more. God will handle our rewards in His own time. God will handle our rewards in His own time. When Mordecai saved the king's life back in chapter 2, uh, nothing was done for him. He, he got no, you know, no public recognition. The only thing he got was his name mentioned in the chronicles of the king's life. So no immediate reward, no immediate recognition for saving the life of the king. But God saw that a reward or recognition was given to him at the most appropriate time. We may wish sometimes that, um, that, our, uh, that our work for God is rewarded immediately. Um, you know, that may not just not be the case. If we focus on planting and watering... God will handle the increase. Paul put that. Paul put it that way. First Corinthians three through eight. And if we recognize and remember the message of Hebrews six ten, where the writer there said, "God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward His name." God is not unjust to forget that. Yes. Sir. Oh. Um, other people might. Other people might not notice it. But really, if what we're doing in the kingdom, we're doing for God anyway, then, then what really does it matter if, if we receive human recognition for that? If, if we're offering service to God for God, 
then we know that God sees and God will reward. And that reward we receive and recognition may not be in this life. We, not, we may not receive an ounce of recognition for what we've done in this life. But God is not unjust to forget. Uh, and, uh, and he will reward according to principles of righteousness and justice and truth. Yeah. Show everything that God was doing for him. Yeah. Brothers never conceived yeah. of him being the one that they would have to go to yeah. for help. Yeah, he was the one that they that they thought would, would be in that position. Yes. It all, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it, it all, yeah, there were lot, lots, of, um, lots of moving parts in this that all worked together. Yes, Dan. Yeah, it's a great point. Good point to end on, by the way, too. We're out of time. Thank you much. Appreciate it.